All right, at 29 minutes, it is to the top of the hour. Deacon Blue, real gone kid. In three and a half months, I think it's been three and a half months since the Hamas attack in southern Israel, which again, if you're new to the program, um, don't jump in with two feet. I don't know what happened in southern Israel on October 27th. But when I say I don't know what happened, I don't know the timeline of it, how it actually went down, okay? But officially, and the generally accepted version of it is, is that Hamas militants um, breached the fence, the Israeli erected fence, of course, and killed around 1,200 Israeli citizens and IDF forces responding to it. That's the official version of it, right? There are many holes in it, of course, not least. We've talked often about the Times of Israel, which has done some bloody good work, questioning how it happened and, you know, was it allowed to happen and the lookouts who were threatened with court-martial if they didn't shut up about, you know, reporting activity on on the, the, the border or the fence line. Anyway, what's the point? Well, the point is, since then, Two million Palestinians have been displaced in Gaza. 70,000 plus have been injured or wounded, right? Of the 70,000, 11,000, this is the United Nations now, are in a critical condition and they need immediate medical intervention. 27,500 people were killed, have been killed, and they reckon 11,500 of those are children. There's nearly 9,500 Palestinians in detention in Israel, and 60,000 plus tons of munitions have been dropped on Gaza. To discuss this and the wider implications of it and where it's going, let's welcome back to the programme a friend of mine. He's an academic researcher, author and broadcaster. These days he's living in Morocco. It's uh, welcome back to our friend Kevin Barrett. Hello, Kevin. Welcome back. Hey, hello, hey. Richie. Always great to be back with you, no matter how Pleasure terrible thing. the world is. It is. First time this year. We'll speak many times, hopefully, this year. Those are stark figures. When October the 27th happened, did you in your wildest imagination imagine we'd be reading numbers such as those out on radio shows like this? Did you see that level of carnage coming? No, I didn't, because I I didn't think that the U.S. administration would allow it. I'm actually still uh, somewhat uh, amazed and, and not in a good way at the fact that this Democratic administration that is supposed to have a slightly different outlook on uh, occupied Palestine than the Trump administration did. Trump administration was completely under the control of Netanyahu and his extremist lunatic fringe. And the Democrats are supposed to be the other party. And they're supposed to include the foreign policy realists, moderates, and so on. So I really had no clue that the U.S. administration would allow Israel to go this far in committing genocide. It's just shocking. But, you know, Israel is digging its own grave. And it's so shocking that the American administration is allowing Israel to do that, because, again, Biden's administration is basically a a minion. That is, uh, you know, the Jewish Daily Forward said enough Jews to make a minion. That is the U.S. administration is is just totally uh, (laughs) filled with Jews. And they're all pro-Israel Jews, but they're liberal, moderate pro-Israel Jews. They're the last people you would expect to be telling Biden to go ahead and allow Bibi Netanyahu and his settler uh, lunatics to commit this kind of genocide and dig Israel's grave. So, yeah, I'm, I am surprised. There's so many hardline Zionists, it seems, in the administration, not just there. And yet we know, and this is not me doing my mainstream media thing, it's just worth mentioning. I mean, here in Salford, Manchester, 
when we see the protests here, the really deeply felt, heartfelt protests, um, there are tens, uh, there, there are dozens, dozens and dozens, if, if not hundreds of Jewish people who say as loud as they possibly can, not, not in our name. What, what does that mean to you? Cause, cause I, I never mentioned this because it's not relevant. You, you converted to Islam. You're a Muslim. What does it mean to you knowing? Does it mean anything that so many Jewish people completely co- condemn and abhor this and say not in our name? And yet they never get a chance when talk TV shows here in the UK and radio shows want to discuss it. As far as people are concerned, you know, Jewish people are all for this, but they're not, Kevin, not, not, not the Jewish people I know. Not the Jewish people I know either. I have a probably a disproportionate share of Jewish radio guests, you know, people who are always concerned about issues related to Jewish power often harp on the disproportionate presence of Jews in this or that sector, with, of course, the media being the number one focus. But, hey, my radio show is part of the media, and I'm pretty sure that I have more than 2% of my guests uh, have some kind of Jewish background. And I suppose that's just because I look for the most interesting people who have something worthwhile to say that's outside the box. And there are probably, yeah, it's just going to be a little bit disproportionately people of Jewish background. And that's cool with me. And the vast majority of those people are pretty much, you know, as horrified as I am, if not more so. I think this does illustrate, Richie, the way that Jewish tribal power has always had a kind of a, you know, an inner layer and then this outer layer that kind of bleeds off into the surrounding communities. And the inner layer is fanatically tribal and utterly brainwashed. You know, that's, that's our, our uncle Mortimer who you know, reads the New York Times every morning. And the only thing he cares about is, is it good for the Jews? And then there's somebody else in the family that is a much more critical thinker and much more open-minded and probably is going to go off and, and marry a non-Jewish person. And in another couple of generations, their descendants may not even count themselves as Jewish anymore, but the descendants of Mortimer certainly will. And so you've had this uh, tribal power configuration passed down through the centuries. And today, let's face the fact, Richie, that yes, of all, you know, if we poll Jewish people in the West, we're going to find uh, a very large number that are against this genocide. Not so in Israel, of course. Um, but at the same time, the powerful uh, part of, of, Jew, of the Jewish tribe, let's say, Jewish tribal power is pro-genocide. That is, the Biden administration, as liberal and democratic as it's supposed to be, is pro-genocide. Uh, they have power. And then the other side, the Republican uh, Jews and the people who are getting vast amounts of Jewish money, which is the entire American government, uh, those people are, are even more uh, rabidly pro-genocide. So the Jews with power are largely pro-genocide, and the Jews without power are largely anti-genocide. And we have to face that fact and talk about it. Kevin, are we naive um, in expecting or hoping that the government in D.C. would do anything at all to rein in Israel? I mean, I, you and I, have, we, we've not battled on this, we've not pointed heads, but I've said to you before over the years is that when I look at the crimes of nations, I'm happy to talk all day about the genocide. I'm happy to talk all day about the Nakba, you know, 75 years of brutality and torture and confinement and you know, humiliation of the, uh, of the people of Palestine all day long and how wrong it is. I'm about the only 
you know, radio presenter in this part of the world who, who will regularly state his belief that Israel doesn't have a right to exist and shouldn't exist, even if it does. But aren't we naive? Haven't our governments, the British, I say our because I live in the UK, the British government, the United States government, whether or not a Democrat or a Republican has sat in the Oval Office, look at the crimes they've committed, Kevin. They make Israel look like a choir boy, even in the last 30, 35 years. So it's kind of preposterous. Not I'm not calling you preposterous, but I think it's generally preposterous to hold out any hope that Western governments will do anything to stop what's happening in Gaza because we're contributing to a genocide in Yemen. We'll talk about that in a minute. And this Houthi story that's running through the media here and the Iran-backed Houthis, we'll talk about that. But um, our devils are worse than their devils, Kevin. What do you say to that? Well, uh, I don't think anybody, uh, including the Western leaders, makes the current Zionist leadership look like choir boys. That's for sure. Uh, I, I would put it the other way around. In fact, I've had this discussion with Iranian colleagues. I've, I was visiting Iran every year pretty much from, what, 2013 through 2019, I think it was. And they have that famous slogan, you know, death to America, death to Israel and so on. And they have talked about America being the, the great uh, Satan or demon and Israel being the little Satan or demon. And I argue that sometimes it looks the other way around to me. Uh, and in terms of, yes, American imperial policy has been brutal and ruthless all over the world since World War II, killing around 60 million people, according to Andrei Volchek and Noam Chomsky yeah. in their book on Western terrorism. Uh, and a lot of that hasn't been related to Israel. However, the mass killing in the Middle East and in the region where Israel is, has been largely the result of uh, that Zionist invasion, occupation, and ethnic cleansing of Palestine. In fact, it's, I don't, what would have happened had there been no Israel is debatable, but every single advisor to President Truman begged him not to allow the creation of Israel, saying that this would be, it would just be an unending bloodbath for the world and an unending curse on the United States. And it has been. Uh, so when we throw in the deaths caused by the existence of Israel, which is basically the majority of the deaths in that region, uh, including the up to 30 million, uh, well, maybe 25 million uh, that Gijin Palya says uh, were killed in the 9-11 wars, I think uh, Israel is hitting way, way above its weight in uh, in being evil. Uh, and so, therefore, on kind of a, a sized basis, if we adjust for the fact Israel is only 15 million people, Israel is vastly, vastly more evil relative to its size than any of the Western nations. Yeah, and it's funded by Britain, it's funded by the United States, it's funded by Iran, but the United States and Britain are funding the genocide of Yemeni people as well. And there are about 500 little proxy wars going on around Africa and in the Far East, as you well know, and they're being funded and supplied and given oxygen by the military industrial complexes of our countries as well. This is not, you know, a kind of what if or but like it just it just has to be said. I see no good guys anywhere. I'd like to talk about the Houthis, right? Um, and listen, I'm an Irish guy and I don't know whether it ends up in your DNA. I don't know. But my forefathers and foremothers, they fought for centuries against invaders from all over the bloody world, right? Um, and I don't know if it's in their DNA. So my sympathy, my feelings have always been for the people of Gaza and for the people of Palestine and always will be. What Israel is doing is, ab- is an abomination. You know, it's anti-life, it's anti-human, it's anti-everything. It's disgraceful. But... um 
I still say that our um, intelligence agencies, the deep states of our countries, have done as bad and are continuing to do as bad and will continue to do as bad. Are they trying to drive a, us to the brink or are they trying to actually create a genuine global conflict, Kevin? I'll ask you this because I am reading and hearing the same sort of reading the same articles, listening to the same TV shows as that I was listening to back in 2002 when they were telling lies about Saddam Hussein. Now they're telling us that Iran is the greatest threat to peace and security on planet Earth. It's, um, they're, they're, without any challenge whatsoever, these military experts are going on British news programs with no challenge from the nodding dog presenters. They're saying that if there's evil anywhere, Iran is supporting it. Iran is supporting Hamas. Iran is supporting the Iraqi revolutionaries. Apparently, this is new to me. And Iran is sponsoring training and funding the Houthis who are causing chaos now in the Red Sea and interfering with global shipping routes and causing the prices of our groceries to spike even further. Iran, 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 Iran. Should we be really worried about this level of propaganda, where it's going? Well, I don't think this propaganda has as willing an audience. Nobody really is believing it the way that they were believing that same kind of propaganda in 2003. And of course, a lot of people didn't believe it even back then, but it's uh, it's a different time now. Uh, there was an article in Time magazine that came out yesterday uh, by one of these uh, professional foreign policy types who pointed out that Biden is in a political pickle because of being tr- way too pro-war and specifically pro-war in the Middle East. Uh, the polls are showing 80% of Americans uh, are worried about getting sucked into a Middle East war, uh, that um, the vast majority uh, totally reject and are disgusted by the so-called 9-11 wars uh, culminating in the ignominious withdrawal from Afghanistan, and that right now the uh, the, the public opinion is, is all running anti-war. Uh, Biden has problems both with uh, the Republicans who are against the war on Russia through Ukraine and his within his own party, uh, the people who are predominantly against uh, these Middle Eastern wars for Israel. So politically, I don't think it's going to fly. I think the same propaganda organs, which are run uh, largely by neocons, and neocons are extreme uh, imperialists, U.S. imperialists, who are partly motivated by their belief that a very rabid, vicious, uh, and powerful American empire is Israel's best protection. Uh, those people are still propagandizing, but the public isn't listening anymore. So I don't think that they have any confidence that they could pull off a big war and get the public behind them. I'm a man of peace myself, Kevin, as you know. I don't believe in violence as a means of resolving conflicts, but... I, I reserve a special little tiny corner of my heart for Lindsey Graham. God, that man is a ghoul, isn't he, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been without even getting into the rumors about stuff that he does that makes Jeffrey Epstein's clients look tame, uh, and, and, and less hypocritical, I suppose, even. Um, that guy is just totally bought and paid for by all of the most evil people in America, whether it's the military industrial complex, the um, the Israel lobby or whoever, uh, yeah, he's he's going to have a lot to answer for when he goes to meet his maker. 
Speaking of the Israel lobby, I've been fascinated for many years. You'll remember Peter Oborn, who used to write for The Telegraph. You you probably saw the documentary about 20 years ago. He made a wonderful documentary for dispatches for Channel 4 called The Israeli Lobby. And it was only played once or twice. It was never shown the light of day again, unsurprisingly. And it was a documentary that delved into just how powerful the Israeli lobby is, particularly in the UK. He dealt with the UK specifically. And I'm wondering, I'm always looking for the journalistic angle. By the way, Kevin Barrett can be found at truthjihad.com. But, 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 he has a substack, kevinbarrett.substack.com. Do subscribe to him. Open your mind. You'll get a lot of opinions. You'll hear things that maybe you won't hear on this program. Challenging information that will make you think again. kevinbarrett.substack.com. Kev, I'm always looking for the journalistic angle. Do you think a lot of the Israeli um, lobby, do you think it's successful on on some level, partly because we kind of grew up in, in high school and university, so we learned about genocides, many genocides, but we learned a lot about um, World War Two. Do you think a lot of those who sign up to the Israeli lobby, and I'm talking about politicians, they do so primarily motivated by some sense of decency? Because, you know, they've, you know, they, they, they know their history. They've, they, they've, they've learned about it. They've maybe traveled over there to Poland, to Germany. And maybe they, they're motivated by this more than anything else. You know, this idea that, you know, Jews have been, um, chased out of countries in, 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 uh, through history, that Jews have been persecuted and that, yeah, you know, Israel is the home place for Jews and therefore it's the right thing to do to sign up to the Jewish lobby. Um, I've gone around the gardens there asking that question. I couldn't phrase it the way I wanted to phrase it, but a lot of the pro-Israeli politicians maybe feel that they're motivated by some sense of good, do you think? And they really don't know? Well, that's, that's an interesting question, Rishi. I think that ultimately, a lot of people uh, are not deep thinkers, and that goes double for politicians. So they probably aren't even really capable of formulating a thought if that thought would get in the way of their chances of reelection, which depends on their uh, chances of raising huge sums of money. And somewhere in the neighborhood of close to half of all the money that goes into American political races comes from Zionist Jewish sources with earmarks. But and not fact, here, okay. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but not in the UK, which is fascinating. Like that money. Now you're, you're probably going to argue with me and say, Richie, proxy companies. And, you know, if you were a hardline Zionist in Tel Aviv, you could fund a British candidate through, as I said, subsidiary company, companies or proxy companies. But Oborn at the time looked, looked into this. There isn't that much Israeli money going to candidates for their campaigns. Not in this. I know the opposite is true in America. Do you find that curious? Well, I, I think that the key factor is the domination of the media by Zionist Jews. I mean, let's face it, and that's that's not an anti-Semitic canard. That's just the facts. Uh, Philip Weiss, uh, a former New York Times journalist, wrote a terrific article about this. He's Jewish himself, and he founded the wonderful Mondo Weiss website. And his article is called, uh, do, uh, do Jews dominate in media, and so what if we do? And he points out that, yes, we do. And then what's the so what? Well, the so what means that ultimately the vast majority of the Jews who dominate the media 
feel that they are the last line of defense against Israel being pushed into the sea. And so they skew all their coverage of anything related to Israel in the favor of pro-Israeli propaganda. So I think that the fact that the media is owned by Zionist Jews, operated by Zionist Jews, dominated by Zionist Jews at all the important levels in the UK, as well as the US and across the West, is by far the single biggest factor in creating this public myth, as Philip Zelikow, the 9-11 Commission uh, mythologist, uh, calls them, public myth being some uh, mythical tale about history that it, you know people just believe whether or not it happens to be true, and it motivates them emotionally to see things in a certain way. And yes, the public myth of World War II with the, the, the Holocaust and the other uh, lies about well, how we are the good guys and they were the bad guys, 100% good on one side, 100% bad on the other side. Those are ridiculous propaganda lies that were like the gas chambers, probably. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I'm about 70% sure that were invented as World War II propaganda. And that when the war ended, we never stopped. Uh, we never laid off the propaganda. As, you know, Ron Unz has written articles showing that in the 1950s, many people did lay off the propaganda. And in fact, basically nobody of substance in the United States even believed that there had been a Holocaust or had been any gas chambers. And Eisenhower, uh, Churchill, and de Gaulle wrote huge memoirs totaling more than 10,000 pages and never once uh, mentioned the Holocaust in their World War II memoirs. So basically, World War II propaganda of every type has continued after World War II, and it's been used by the West to create this image that we are the good guys, and everything we do, everybody we kill, every every everybody we fight, every genocide we commit is is justified because we're continuing to be the good guys that we were during World War II. So yeah, World War II propaganda that never died and lies about World War II that have not been fully debunked yet in the public uh, imagination are largely responsible for the fact that people can live with themselves when they pursue these hideous and genocidal policies, killing tens of millions of people. U.S. Empire has probably killed close to 100 million people since World War II, all the while thinking that it was the good guy. And it's absolutely imperative that we completely debunk this and debunk all of these lies about World War II. Listen, you you won't, when it comes to open debate and um, uncensored and unfiltered discussion, there's no greater supporter of that than me. I have no problem with it. I've interviewed Holocaust deniers over the years. When I say that, I'm not labeling you as anything. I'm not. Um, you, you've been on with me for years and you'll continue to come on with me when, um, hopefully when I ask you in the future, I believe in the right of people to believe and think whatever they like 100%. And I understand when debates are shut down and people are labeled and people are called names. And I understand why people are suspicious. Look, there are a million things. I'm a third level history graduate. There are a million things that you can prove about what went on in the Second World War that people don't know about. And that I suppose people who run governments in 2024 would rather never saw the light of day. We could talk all day long about who supported Hitler in the 1930s, the companies, the petrochemical companies around the world supported him, the, those who wanted to dominate and control Europe, um, who wanted the Nazis to succeed so that they could later on control Hitler. These were the founding fathers, really, of the European Union. We, we completely differ um, when it comes to what happened in Nazi Germany because I've been there and I believe, and I will believe to my dying day, that there was an attempt to exterminate the Jewish um, population in Germany and in Poland and elsewhere. That's my take on it. Um, how they tried to do that and how they did it, I don't know. But they did, in my opinion, try to do it. But I'm with you. Nothing should be taboo. People should be allowed to speak about anything and should be allowed to question anything without being... Um, I mean, in some countries, you can go to prison for it, as far as I know. I think in Germany, if you question um, certain aspects of what happened in 
the Second World War. Am I right in saying that, Kevin? You can go yeah. to prison? Well, yeah. I, I know somebody who's currently in prison uh, for questioning the Holocaust. That would be Alfred Schaefer. And his sister, Monica Schaefer, is a friend of mine. And she also spent time in prison in Germany, even though she's a Canadian, not a German, for questioning the story of the Holocaust. Why would that story need that kind of protection if it were true? I mean, that's that in itself is just such a huge red flag. Yeah, it's funny you say that because friends of mine and people I've met over the years through the media, they that that's that's a point they make consistently is they say, well, if there isn't something wrong with the story, why would they, you know, why would they work so hard to silence or to punish anybody who questions it? And look, it's a fair enough question. But as I said, my take on it is, and look, you've known me for years. You you know the level of persecution this radio show has had. I mean, five years ago, I mean, the lengths they went to get me off air, all because I said I was tired of hearing about the Holocaust. Imagine that you could say something truthful. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of watching Netflix films about the Holocaust. Like, we know, we know. And they came after me for that. Well, every, uh, everybody's tired of it, Richie. If they let you say it, everybody will, will start saying it themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was asked by an independent, well, sorry, a journalist for the independent trying to set me up. Um, but I don't care. I'll always speak the truth, at least as I understand it. And I said, um, so what do you think of the Holocaust, Richie? Because I'd interviewed two very well-known Holocaust deniers, even though I didn't agree with them. And I don't agree with them. And I made it clear during the interview that I don't agree with them. But but you're not even supposed to speak to people, Kevin. I mean, even if I disagree with you, we're two, you know, intellectual adults. I like you. Whatever your opinions about anything are, I don't care because I like you. I like listening to you. You're an academic. Um, but I'm not supposed to speak to you, Kevin. Even if I disagree with you, that's I'm, I'm not supposed to speak to you. I'm supposed to contribute to the ban. That's how it's supposed to be, you see. So they came after me, not because I agreed with my guest. Um, that was irrelevant. They came after me simply for interviewing him. So they said to me, so what do you think of the Holocaust then? And of course, I gave them the answer they wanted, which is the truth. I'm sick to death of hearing about it. Let's talk about Vietnam for a change. Let's talk about Chechnya. Let's talk about, I don't know, Russia during the 30s and 40s. And the millions of people killed there. But, um, yeah, it is, it remains of interest to me that, you know, they could try to destroy somebody just because they say, you know what? I don't believe that aspect of history. I challenge it. That is, well, you know, that way Kevin lies tyranny, right? Or abject tyranny. Indeed. And, and it really suggests that that how important that issue is to them, that they will just ruin careers and send people to prison for um, beliefs about history that don't fit the public myth that is used to motivate people to go out and, and commit mass murder. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I really do recommend that people look in, into those issues. You know, regardless of what you think about the Holocaust per se, there are a lot of things that you didn't know about that era. You know, the fact that the founding fathers of the state of Israel were virtually uniformly pro-Nazi and worked very closely uh, with the Nazis during 1930. In fact, the Proto-Israelis or the Zionists of the 1930s were the very best friends of the Nazi party in Germany. And indeed, there wouldn't be any Israel today if the Germans hadn't spent lots of money and uh, uh, given the Zionists lots of help in establishing more and more Jewish settlements in what would later become Israel. Yeah, hang on, hang on. It's a stretch to say they were the very best friends. What, 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 you're talking about the Havre Agreement, right? So what it was was Zionists wanted to get, sorry, Nazis just wanted to get Jews out of Germany. That's that's what the Havre Agreement was all about. So it was the agreement to transfer 
um, the belongings and the money of Jewish people to Palestine, right? That's what it, they, they minted a coin, didn't they, uh, to commemorate this? But I think it might be a stretch to suggest that these Zionist Jews were in any way the best friends of the Nazis. I think the Nazis just wanted rid of them. No, it, actually, the relationship went pretty far beyond that. And uh, even during World War II, um, there were a couple of militias in, uh, in then, you know, Palestine, Zionist militias that would later become the Israeli Defense Forces. And, and one of them actually volunteered to fight on behalf of Nazi Germany against its enemies. This is in the smack dab in the middle of World War II, uh, around the same time that the supposed Holocaust was allegedly beginning in the summer of 1942. What did they make? Final question. Um, it, it's very rare it comes up on this show, you know, the whole idea of Holocaust denial and what, what did and didn't happen in Nazi Germany. What's the, this is a very, you can't really answer this question, but you've traveled more in the Middle East than I have. When, because you've traveled in Iran extensively, obviously you're in Morocco now. What do you think Muslims generally think about when they think back to the Second World War, the First World War. What's the general train of thought about it, do you think, if you could even begin to quantify it? Well, from most of you know, Muslim countries were colonized uh, by Europe um, and suffered under that colonialism. And in some cases, some benefited as well. I suppose some people did. Uh, but overall, the uh, development of the, most of the Muslim countries was really not enhanced by European colonialism, to say the least. And then, of course, the the culture, the local culture, was subjected to all kinds of uh, attacks um, in neighboring Algeria, which is just a few few kilometers away from where I am right now. Uh, they really uh, suffered something getting close to cultural genocide because the French were calling Algeria a part of the, the hexagon. That is just That's part right. of France, like the rest of France. And they labeled the Muslims as second class citizens, sort of like the Israelis are doing now with non-Jews put it on their identification documents. And then those people got less resources and were basically, you know, kept in poverty and squalor as uh, de facto near slaves of the colonizers. So it, it, from the Muslim world's point of view, these world wars were really just cases of these pretty nasty colonizing countries that had mistreated the Muslims suddenly committing mass murder against each other. And there was no particular reason to favor one side over the other. And frankly, I think from a, uh, a neutral perspective, if you if you study World War II very carefully, you know, imagine you're a space alien or something and you don't really have a dog in the fight, you'll come to that same uh, perspective. That is that both sides in World War II were absolutely hideous. Both sides committed massive atrocities. And again, this black versus white, good versus evil public myth that we've gotten in the West about World War II is complete nonsense. I agree with this, you know, this characterization of, um, we're the good guys. We did the liberating. You're right, Kevin. It's, it's why I said, I mean, look, when you do history, not every history graduate, of course, will take the time to really delve into the, the periods they're studying and try to canvas the widest, um, possible body of opinion. Most of them don't. They stay with the textbooks that are recommended by the universities. But some of us didn't do that. Some of us went way beyond that. So look, I, I know I, 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 what you're saying is absolutely right. The so-called allies, the, the most unspeakable things during that period, uh, things that were as ugly and as awful and as atrocious 
as what the Nazis did. You're absolutely right to say that. Um, Kevin, I'll give you the final word, 30 seconds, um, before we part company today. Thanks for coming back on. Kevin Barrett.substack.com. So you're telling me that for, for those of our listeners who are concerned, who are worried, you know, they might have a youngster maybe in the army. In fact, I know one or two people whose um, young sons have gone into the army for a career for themselves, that maybe we shouldn't be too concerned about an all-out global conflict, at least not in the short term. You wouldn't think so. Well, things that can sometimes spin out of control. Uh, I think there's a conspiracy theory that World War I was all planned out. I don't think so. I think that, yeah, there were contingency plans and different forces had their their, uh, views of what they could do with the war. But ultimately, things kind of spun out, you just spun out of control. And a lot of people that didn't want the war got dragged into it. And that could happen now. And there's really a setup for it. Uh, and we're, we're really at the precipice of, uh, of a huge shift in global power. And at such a moment, world wars become increasingly likely. So it is something we should be concerned about and we should be pushing back against and doing everything we can to try to support peace. Kevin, thanks for coming back today. Um, very quickly, how long has it been now? Six, eight months, 10 months you've been in Morocco. How's life? Well, it's pretty nice, Richie. Uh, right before I got on the show today, I, uh, I ran a couple of miles up and down the beach and swam in the Mediterranean. And I certainly wouldn't be uh, running uh, in a swimsuit and swimming uh, <laughs> next to the lake I lived on in Wisconsin right now. No, you wouldn't. No. <laughs> uh, do give um, our best and fondest regards to uh, the lovely Rabia, by the way. I know she listens every now and then when she gets a chance um, to this show. So give her our best. And thanks again, Kevin. Speak to you uh, pretty soon. Okay, looking forward to it, Richie. Thanks. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin Barrett, truthjihad.com. You'll find Kevin at kevinbarrett.substack.com. Kevin is an academic, a writer, a broadcaster, and uh, I'm very fond of him. I got to know him not long after he was on national television in America when they tried to castigate him and berate him and embarrass him because he was asking questions about September the 11th, and uh, that's when I came across Kevin.